Let's go before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning as always in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as always because you're worthy of praise and honor and glory. We thank you for the knowledge of Christ, for the salvation and blessing that he has brought upon us. We thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures to us about who you are, who Christ is and what he has done for us. We pray, Lord, that you help us with understanding, help all those who are gathered here and those who are gathered from afar. May you open their spiritual eyes that they may see and hear the truth of Christ. We honor you, glorify you. For all those of Christ who may not be feeling well this morning, may you keep them and strengthen them also. We pray and we thank you. And in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Hi, everyone. Good to be here one more time to speak about the things that really matter. The things of your salvation, the things of the everlasting, ever-living God who created all things for his glory, including ourselves and has come in time to reveal himself to us in salvation. And that is the message that the Lord has given us to gather around this morning that we may understand, hear from him. May he speak to every one of us in the manner that he alone is able to speak. This morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17 and we'll work our way through to verse 29. I pray everybody has been following the teaching that we have shared. I think in the last six messages, it's very, very important that we understand the things that we have spoken about already because they are foundational to the understanding of everything else that follows after. Okay? So we are in Romans 2, verse 17 to 29, and this is going to be from the New King James. Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable 
if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from man, but from God. And that is the word of the Lord, a lot of things there. But we have one title to this message, The Condemnation of the Lawkeeper. <laughs> the Condemnation of the Lawkeeper. A lot of people have never heard of that, that the Lawkeeper is condemned. So we come back again to the book of Romans to continue with our verse-by-verse teaching of God's gospel and seeking to understand God's perspective of the whole matter of salvation, the way that God sees things and connecting the pieces. It is important that we follow the arguments that are being laid out because they are useful to what follows from chapter to chapter. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is laying down the foundation of what leads to his message that he calls God's gospel or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to say, what really is the good news in this message, what is the good news and why is it the good news? What is good about it? And this foundational teaching is lacking in many places that call themselves churches even this morning. And that is why we spend a lot of time just arguing about what the gospel is. Because many people have been mad to think that their obedience to the commands of scripture is what makes them saved. No matter what they say about Jesus, no matter what they say about the work of Christ. And so they are constantly, day in and out and week in and week out, talking about their obedience. They are always talking about their own obedience. And there's nothing wrong about obedience. There's nothing wrong about talking about obedience. But the problem is, that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. The good news is not about your obedience. So I do not trust professing Christians who are always talking about 
human obedience at the expense of the obedience of Christ. They are never talking about Jesus. Okay? You need to hear what people are saying about Jesus. Because everybody can be agreed on the commands, but the commands don't save anyone. We have to hear about the righteousness of God. Everything said and done, that's the real issue. That's the matter. So what you see and what you hear is that Jesus and the cross are being used as enablers of salvation to help people to become righteous in themselves. And so you hear a lot of talking about, oh, the Holy Spirit causes us to obey, to do the commands, to keep the law. No. To some level. Yes, but that still is not the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not the gospel. The Holy Spirit testifies of the gospel. The Holy Spirit testifies of what Christ has done in the salvation of his people. So, you have to be careful how you hear from all these self-styled gospel preachers, whether on Facebook or wherever they are, you have to learn to listen carefully to what they are saying. Test the spirits and hear what they are saying. What they are saying about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But let us make some comment on what Paul has just said in the verses that we've just read in Romans 2. What Paul has done here is unprecedented, if you really think about it. Remember what he has said at the opening of his letter to the Romans. Let's go to Romans 1, 8 to 12. It's remarkable what Paul is doing. Romans 1, 8 to 12. This is what Paul has said. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Paul introduced himself in a very kind way and addressed these Romans, Roman believers as beloved of God and saints whom he longed to see and even said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. He pronounced, declared peace to them from God and said, Oh, I have even been praying for you. 
And you'd think, given such a greeting, given such an opening, he would continue to write very kind words to them. Having started that way and saying, oh, guess what? I have more barbecue chicken wings for you. No, no. He does not do that. He kind of teases them with the gospel at the opening of Romans chapter 1 and talks about the gospel of God, the righteousness of God, grace and peace to you. And then quickly he shifts, switches the gears so that he would develop the gospel understanding for them. And if it means stepping on their toes, Paul is now stepping on people's toes. And this is the knowledge and the spiritual gift that he seeks to impart to them. When he meets them on his way to Spain, remember, Paul is going to Rome that he also may be prepared on his missionary journey, journey to Spain. But his point is not necessarily to attack the Roman believers, but to amplify the goodness of the news of Christ Jesus by bringing the human condition to its proper view as God says it. And it is shocking. They must have a proper appreciation of the context and the issues of salvation. And this is lacking in much of what is called gospel preaching. They must appreciate the context and the issues that surround you and I as sinners. The issues that God has revealed about himself. So if we don't understand these things, we cannot be totally grounded in the gospel truth and glory in God's grace alone in salvation. Paul wants everybody who comes to Christ, who comes to God, to say it is Christ alone. (laughs) It is God's grace alone. It is through faith alone. That's the point. So the gospel of Christ is not some food program, some soup kitchen program run by politicians who are seeking office and seeking favors from the masses. Where anything goes, where deception goes, as long as they get them to vote, far from it. The gospel comes and explains the real issues, the real matters in very clear terms and says the spiritual condition of all men and women is desperately bad. They are condemned. They are hopeless because they have been and are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, and God knows it. 
Because all that they need to know to worship God has been made plain to them by God himself. So none has an excuse before him. None has an excuse before God to say, oh, I just didn't really know anything about your existence. And that establishes God's righteousness and right to condemn people, even those who have never heard the gospel. Hearing the gospel is not what makes you saved. And rejecting the gospel is not the only basis of judgment. Romans 1 denies that and says people are condemned because they refused and suppressed God's knowledge in natural or general revelation. What can be known about God has been made manifest. But to this matter of condemnation and salvation, as we shall expound in the coming messages, we have a lot of moving paths. You have the issue of election, the issue of reprobation, predestination, in other words. So all that comes into play, and Paul will bring it in the chapters to come and will speak to them. But the point still is, Many hear the gospel who shall go to hell because the hearing of the gospel is not salvation itself. People who don't believe are still going to go to hell. There are a lot of people. In the time that we live, the majority of the world have heard of Jesus. They have heard of Jesus. But they deny God's testimony of Christ. And for that reason, they're going to be condemned. Because they're rejecting the truth. They're rejecting the Son of God. There's not a single Muslim who doesn't know about Jesus. They have heard about Jesus. They have reduced Jesus to just a prophet of the same level as Muhammad. But Jesus will not take that. That is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But God says, by way of the natural revelation that he has put in his creation, he essentially has made himself visible to all men and women. But man doubled down in defiance and open rebellion to God, claiming to be wise and in the process proved themselves to be fools. Their minds, their thoughts became futile, and their hearts were darkened and began to worship themselves, worship the creatures, animals, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. But see this. Their darkness did not remove religion. No. Men and women will always worship something. <laughs> they will always worship something. What they did was just an exchange 
of the glory of God for the lesser things, worshipping his creation, the creation worshipping itself, instead of worshipping the God, the incorruptible God who is blessed forever. Okay? Just watch the big sports games, big events, and see and hear the level of excitement and reverent worship and the tears that are shed for the teams. But none of that comes when it comes to the God who rules and is worthy of all honor and glory. None of that happens. But at the stadiums, it does happen. At the Super Bowl, it does happen. And this great show of paganism was very much widespread in Rome as Paul was writing this. This depravity was out there for all to see and had become acceptable practice in the pagan society, even Roman society, where some of the iniquity had been legislated, as we have in our day with the Raw versus Wade, Planned Parenthood and such. These have been legislated, they've been normalized into the consciousness of our society. So the matters that Paul raised were not things that were being done by the people who were just over there. And that is what a lot of people think when it comes to sin. To them, sin and bad things are not only for, are only, I meant to say, sin and the bad things are only for the bad neighborhoods. They are only by those uncultured people, unschooled people, who are over there somewhere. They're always over there. Not here, they're always over there. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you all have no excuse before God. You all have sinned and there's no way of escape. So Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 seals the fate of all in the pagan world who are outwardly putting a splendid Sure of sin, Romans 1 outright condemns the whole pagan world. The whole Gentile world is condemned. But now, this is what Paul says. Keep moving with me. Paul now goes to the second tier of the conversation to deal with those even from among the pagans who may have appeared as righteous people, who thought themselves as better people, who were above the fray and were decent citizens of society, nice people, well-to-do people, well-behaved people. And we find many in our day, they have not gotten a speeding ticket, they have not stolen anything to their knowledge, occasionally a finger in the cookie jar. That is the worst of sins that they can think of. If they have sinned, 
It was just some occasional oops moments of those acceptable sins which they will clean up and they call them mistakes. They only have done some mistakes. And then they'll say, we all make mistakes. We are all humans. And that is a cover-up statement. But should anyone do the very thing they do, they'll come out to condemn them as unrighteous. But the matter of God goes beyond us just making mistakes. It is about sin. It is about judgment. It is about who you and I are as people. In our own closets. In our own conscience. In our basements. As God sees us. Thinking and doing. Even if we think we have not done wrong. And the more that one thinks they haven't done anything wrong against God, the more deceived they are. It's deception. And so Paul comes with these guns blazing, pointed at these people and say, and says, you too are condemned. Romans 2, verse 2, I think. Or verse 1. I think it's verse 2. Paul says, therefore, you are inexcusable, all men, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You who judge do exactly the same things. And you think this, all men, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you escape the judgment of God. Paul says, you are no better than the people that you think to be less righteous than you. What is Paul doing? Paul is raising the standard of righteousness to all those who are in his hearing, even ourselves. We have to raise our standard of righteousness to more than your neighbor, to more than the best version of yourself. Because as long as we think that righteousness is something that is only a stone's throw away from us and within reach, within the reach of our hands, by way of us not doing some things or doing some things, then the message of God's grace has no good news in it. And we are not hearing what God is saying. And that is why application teaching that is not founded in the gospel truth ends up just being an extension of Judaism that ends up just being part two of the law. You can't do application teaching until people have understood the gospel. I am serious. 
because people tend to default towards application more than they are to holding the truth that salvation is an accomplished work. People always want to do stuff. So if you're too quick to get to application, people will always want to do stuff. And once they start doing stuff, they don't want to repent from it. So the man in Romans 1, with the outward sins, are without excuse. And they deserve to die, like condemned to hell. That's what God says. But the moralist among them is also under the same condemnation. Because he or she is no better than them. Yes, she feels and thinks that she is better and a good person. And even those around her also think that she will go to heaven when she dies because she is such a wonderful and sweet lady. But that is because she is deceived by her self-righteousness. And those around her are deceived by the testimony of their false gospel because they are ignorant of God's righteousness by which one gets the title, the entitlement to go to heaven. So she judges herself and for gender neutrality, equality, he judges himself, to be fair. <laughs> he judges himself based on their own sliding scale. It's an unicalibrated scale. A scale they set for themselves. A deceitful scale because it causes them to feel righteous when they're supposed to feel condemned, when you begin to feel righteous, uh, be worried. Because I think condemnation is deception I meant. is setting in when you begin to think, oh, I am really kicking it. I am really getting better. I am finally getting to the better version of me. That is deception in the works. And that is the heart of moralism and moralistic teaching. It comes and says, be like me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. I am doing better. And I'm better than all these that God has given over to a reprobate mind a depraved mind, a mind to which has been added base things like how base metals, the very cheap metals, the metals that are easily corroded are added to the precious metals like gold and silver to debase them. And reduce the value. Yeah? When you add base metals like zinc, copper, lead to gold, 
you end up with some cheap material. You end up with something that is cheap. You debase the value of the gold. Okay? So the reprobate mind is a mind that has been debased. It is a mind that has fallen in value in respect of the truth of God. So it is a mind that cannot please God. It is a mind that cannot understand spiritual things and is opposed to God. And yet, the debased mind still attracts the same condemnation as that of the moralist. <laughs> it still attracts the sentence of hell. And that is the spiritual condition of all sinners in Adam. It doesn't matter how they decide to dress up their religion in a show of self-piety and so-called personal righteousness. Yes, I have a personal righteousness. What kind of righteousness is that? Whatever happened to the righteousness of God? What do I do with that righteousness? We are not called to come here and talk about Jesus and then and with your personal righteousness. What happened to the imputed righteousness of Christ? What happened to the obedience of Christ? To the suffering of Christ? It is false. And it doesn't matter how people decide to dress up their righteousness. It is still self-righteousness. And one can cook up self-righteousness using the commands of Scripture. Yeah? Because as far as God is concerned, there's only one righteousness. There's only one righteousness. And that is the righteousness that he has revealed through the Son, through the Gospel. There's only one righteousness. There are no Three kinds of righteousness. There's only one. The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So the moralist judges others and condemns them with respect to sin using their personal righteousness, not using the righteousness of God. Their own righteousness is measured by themselves. So the moralist, even though they profess Christ, is deceived. They're deceived about both sin and righteousness itself. They have a very low view of what sin is and its definition as far as God is concerned. And as a result, they also have a very low view of righteousness. That is why <laughs> a lot of people who say gospel this, Jesus this, are always talking about themselves. 
because they don't appreciate the real matter of God's righteousness. So to their way of thinking, as I said, sin is what those other people do. Yeah? And righteousness is what they do themselves. But the Holy Spirit comes and says, no, not so fast. They are just as guilty as the Roman one citizens. Because they practice the very same things that they condemn in others. Now, let me add some words of clarification about what Paul is saying and is not saying. Paul is not talking about judgment in respect of the truth of the gospel. Because many people will take this and say, see, you can't judge me. Because Paul said, we ought not to judge because we would be condemned. No, that's not the context. That's not the context. True believers are still commanded to exercise judgment, to judge, and to judge righteously by the truth of the gospel because God has revealed to them the proper standard of judgment. So the true believers know how to judge righteously because they know the truth. Thus, any person who claims to be righteous in themselves and claims to be doing the law, we judge them by the testimony of the gospel and say, no, you're lying. You're not telling the truth because Romans 1 to 3 say your testimony is false. You are not righteous in yourself. So yes, we can judge by the gospel to tell who is telling the truth on Christ and who is not. We have to make that judgment. Otherwise, we just go and join any church, any gathering. So we have to exercise judgment with respect to the truth of God. That's why you spend the time to learn the truth. So the context of judging that we are dealing with in Romans respects the judgment of others as sinners or as righteous by other sinners based on what they do and condemning them. To say, oh, so and so is not doing this. So they must be condemned of God. But I am not condemned because I don't do the same things that they do. That's the judgment that Paul is saying. You can't do that. Because they are just as guilty. Your testimony has to be. I don't think that this person is saved because they don't believe the truth of God's gospel. Now that is the proper judgment. They are talking about their own righteousness. The ones who have been born of God, they don't talk about their own righteousness. They talk about the righteousness of Christ. That's the judgment. That's the difference. And so God is saying, that is not a useful way to measure. When you're measuring yourself by yourself, measuring yourself 
to others. He says that's not a good way to measure things. Because, yes, it is easy. It is very easy to condemn the citizens of Romans 1 country. It's very easy to condemn them. But then to slide the scale for ourselves and say, the moralist in Romans is a righteous person. And God says, no, they are not. <laughs> that is a wrong and false judgment. The moralist is guilty of the same things that they condemn in others. They are deceitful. They are deceived in respect of righteousness. They are what Jesus called the whitewashed tombs that look clean and beautiful from the outside, but inside are full of all uncleanness and dead men's bones. They look clean from outside. They have a fresh coat of paint, semi-gloss. <laughs> These are they who love to wash the outside of the cup. And yet inside, they remain unclean. How many people have been judged to be righteous by their piety who on close examination do not believe the truth about Christ and God's righteousness? A lot of people are seen in our society as righteous people. That we know, that we, we know these people to be unbelievers of the gospel. Yeah? But they are considered as righteous because of some things that they do. They have some charity that they donate a lot of money to. They have a lot of good works, but they hate Jesus. So we have to judge according to God's righteousness. And to the moralist, God says, you too have no excuse. You are no better than anybody and you are under God's condemnation. So the two groups of people have been shut out. The reckless, in-your-face type sinner given over by God to a depraved mind hopeless and condemned and then to the very good and careful sinner deceived with respect to what real righteousness is they are morally good and reforming they are always reforming they always have a new year's resolution to do better yeah <laughs> I am Working myself to be better. God is working on me. Even they'll ascribe some power to God to say, oh, God is working on me to become better. I think another two, three years, you have a different me. But God says, hopeless and condemned. 
The pagan, hear me someone, hear me someone. The pagan moralist agrees with Paul. With what Paul has said in his treatment of the sinner in Romans 1. The pagan moralist agrees with Paul and says, well, our country is going south. Look at all the things that are happening in this country. I agree with Paul. I agree with Paul. I applaud him. I wish God would bring more preachers like him. The fiery preachers of hell. Encourage him to go deeper in the condemnation. Go deeper, man of God. But past verse 32 of Romans 1. They are beginning not to like Paul. Because he's coming after them. And the Jew who is under the law praises God and Paul for going after the pagan sinner. The Jew agrees with everything that has been said before. He praises God for going after the pagans. He agrees with Paul and says, yes, it was high time something was done about these bad pagans. They give a bad rap to our neighborhood and decrease our property values. <laughs> but the Jew does not know that he is next in line of the firing squad for the very same things. The Jew thinks he knows God and is righteous by his works under the law. That's what the Jew thinks. They think they know God and they think they are righteous by the works of the law. But let us hear what Paul says, Romans 2, verse 17 to 29, in that to say everything that I said was introduction. <laughs> that was introduction. But it's necessary so that we understand how Paul is developing his arguments. Paul is now speaking to the Jews. He says, verse 17, Indeed you are called a Jew, and rest on the law and make your boss in God. See who rests on the law. In other words, who put their confidence in their doing of the law. That's what resting in the law is saying. They're putting their confidence in their performance of the law. That is the thinking of the law keeper. They rest on the law. They rest their eternity on their performance of the law. The moralist rests on their moralism set by their own standards. The Jew rests on the performance of the law of God, but is measured by themselves. So the Jew boasts before God. What could they be boasting about? Because Paul said, you boast before God. You boast in the law. They boast about how they are not like other men. The pagans. 
They boast about how they are not like the extortioners, the adulterers, even this tax collector. They boast about what sins they think they have not done and how everyone else is a sinner, but not them. Just the fact that the Jew boasts before God means they have not understood anything about the law, have not understood anything about righteousness, have not understood anything about God himself. Just the fact that someone is boasting about a single thing in salvation means they don't get it. The law does not make one wise unto salvation. The law puts a veil on the hearts of unbelievers that cannot be removed. And that veil prevents them from seeing the truth of Christ. That's Second Corinthians chapter 3 teaching. It is that veil that causes the lawkeeper to be boastful. So what does the lawkeeper claim to know? Verse 18, Romans 2. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. The Jew under the law claims to know God's will. They claim to approve the things that are excellent, things that are good, of course being instructed out of the law as their guide, out of the law as their standard. And armed with this knowledge, what happens? Verse 19 and following. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. What happens to them? They become confident that they themselves are a guide to the blind, even the Gentiles. So the Jew thought that they saw, they thought that they had vision, spiritual truth of God and salvation. That's what the vision is talking about. That's what the seeing is talking about. And that was one of the sticky points between Jesus and the Jews. If you recall the conversation in John chapter 9 of the healing of the man born blind. And we're told that the man's blindness was from birth. Yes, he was under the law. The man born blind was under the law. He was a Jew. And his physical condition exegeted, as it were, it explained the spiritual condition of Israel under the law and of all mankind in general to say that we are all naturally spiritually born blind like babies of mice or puppies. So when puppies are born, they're born blind. They can't open their eyes. 
Yeah. Takes a few days before they can open their eyes. And that blindness could only be taken away by Jesus. But the Pharisees did not agree and did not like the idea of being called blind. So they raised hell against the man saying that Jesus was a sinner because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. They accused Jesus of being an antinomian, of being against the law. Because remember, the Sabbath was the day of rest, and Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They're like, oh, this Jesus is an antinomian. The same charges that we continue to receive from those who do not understand the gospel. And that exchange in Romans, in John chapter 9, is a very fascinating one between the Pharisees and the man who was formerly blind, that the Pharisees were so outraged that they ended up excommunicating the man, they kicked him out of the synagogue. They're like, get out of here. And that is what happens when one rests on the testimony of the sufficiency of Christ alone. The Pharisees, the legalists, will kick you out. When you ascribe your healing, your receiving of sight, to Christ alone. When you ascribe all of your salvation to Christ alone, the Pharisees are going to come after you. Because the Pharisees come as if they are there to protect the law and yet they are in violation of the very law. The Pharisees do not want to hear that Jesus alone is he who opens the eyes of the blind. They attribute that power to themselves and say, I decided this matter. I chosen to, I chose to open my own blind eyes. I did. I opened my own blind eyes to see Christ. I have a free will. Because God gave all men a free will to decide to open their eyes or to leave them closed. It's foolishness. But let us hear the proper understanding of true vision and true blindness from Jesus himself. Let's go to John 9. John 9, we're going to pick up the story from verse 35. John 9 from verse 35. John says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That is the former blind man. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? See that Jesus found the man, the man had never seen Jesus. Jesus looked for him and found him because he knew the man, the man had never seen Jesus. Jesus is the one who always has to find you in your blindness, never the opposite way. 
Okay? But verse 36 says, He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? See, he didn't know who Jesus was. And Jesus said to him, verse 37, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Those who are blind, like this blind man who belongs to Christ, his eyes were unconditionally opened by Jesus, that he may see Jesus. He saw Jesus. And he said, Lord, I believe in the Son of God. Jesus opened his eyes. But the Pharisees, they did not consider themselves as spiritually blind. They considered themselves as possessing vision. And Jesus says, I have come to make them blind. (laughs) Verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him had these words and said to him, that is, to Jesus, are we blind also? Are you talking about us? Because to their way of thinking, they were not blind. So Jesus, can you kind of just confirm that we are not blind like this man? Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, verse 41, if you were blind, you would have nothing. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Now you say that you see by your own power, you know the things of God by your own power. Jesus says, your sin remains, you remain condemned. Where does Jesus get this authority to say this? To say your sin remains. People don't think about this. There's no Mohammed, there's no prophet, there's nobody who can say stuff like that. Jesus alone, your sin remains. Your sin remains. And that means the sin of the man who was born blind had been removed by Jesus. The condemnation had been removed by him. By the word that Jesus spoke. That's all it takes. The word that Jesus spoke. Remember in John 15, he said to to his disciples, excluding Judas, you are clean by the word that I've spoken. (laughs) You are clean. You are righteous. You are holy by the word that I've spoken. That's enough. And you can't hear this gospel. People can't preach this gospel. They can't preach this Jesus because they don't know this Jesus. Because when Jesus says to someone in the matter of cleansing, you are clean. That's the language of the high priest under the law. Only the high priest would consider or would pronounce a person who had leprosy or some other infection as clean. So Jesus is saying, I've made an inspection of you by my righteousness. And the conclusion is, as the high priest, I see no sin in you. You are clean. That's God's gospel. 
This is God's gospel, people. This is God's gospel. Talking about these commandments and instructions and stuff like that, that's not the righteousness. That's not what makes you clean before God. To be made clean, to be pronounced as clean, is what Jesus says. We have to hear what Jesus has said. We can't base our cleanliness before God by what we are feeling, by what we are doing. It's a faulty way of judging spiritual things. That is the determination that is only given to Christ to make a pronouncement of. In crisis, I've opened your eyes. Your sin has been removed. But if you think you see, your sin remains. You are condemned. Yeah? So the Jew thought and still thinks they see. <laughs> so is the legalist in the matters of God and salvation. And that false vision gives them a false confidence before God. Because the law builds false confidence in the flesh. The law causes you to start building things on your own foundation, using your own materials. So you begin to see your tower of Babel getting taller and taller. And you're like, oh man, I'm killing it. That's where the confidence comes from. And that is the testimony of Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, if you still remember. He thought himself blameless before the law. He had confidence before the law until God came and granted him repentance from his deception. And then he said what? I consider all those things that I thought were gain to me as loss and dung to be flushed down the toilet. Right? So, the result of being under the law is that the Jew is hyper in false confidence. Hyper in self-righteousness. Okay? Hear this again. Romans 2, 19. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So the Jew has all of that going for them. They even claim to be light to those who are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teacher of the babes in God and righteousness, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, but denying the truth of Christ. And that is the problem for the Jew. And now Paul begins to dismantle their confidence and righteousness and says, verse 21, <laughs> the righteousness has to be dismantled. It has to be broken into pieces like China were, or like China falling to the floor, concrete floor. First one, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not 
Still, do you still? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do you see that much of that is coming from the Ten Commandments? The law keeper wants to teach others about righteousness and want to conform others to themselves. But the Holy Spirit says, but they do not teach themselves. And I use law keeper here in a pejorative sense. Because there was ever only one law keeper. Ever. Christ Jesus is the only law keeper to ever walk on planet Earth. So I use law keeper in a pejorative sense to refer to one or those who have confidence in the flesh by reason of something that they are doing. Those who seek to approach God based on their works of righteousness or obedience, even if they may say, oh, grace here and grace there, but are fundamentally sold to their own works and performance for confidence. But the Holy Spirit says, they do not teach themselves. They do not teach themselves. They find themselves guilty of doing the very things that they teach others not to do, like the moralists before them. They find themselves stealing, committing adultery, robbing temples, and that list was not exhaustive. He says, verse 23, You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? They make a boast in the law by claiming to keep what they can't keep. Guess what? Paul says they dishonor God through breaking the same law that they rest so much of their confidence on. If the Jew cannot keep the law, if the Jew cannot keep the law, what chances does the Gentile have? The Gentile, that is you and I, have absolutely no chance. And that is a very important point. And many within the church still claim to do the law. Yeah? And even use it for sanctification, they say. They are being sanctified by the law. And I've bad news for you. There's nowhere where God says to the redeemed, the law is for sanctification. There's nowhere. There's no verse for it. There's not a single verse that even intimates it, that even suggests it in passing. It's not there. It is an invention of men who do not want to be weaned from the breast milk of Moses. Yeah. And they do not know what to do with the law. They do not know what to do with the law. A lot of preachers do not know how to preach the law to find Christ in the law. They only find the law in the law. And yet the law was there for you and I to find Jesus. 
So much of what they teach is coming because of unbelief, not because of devotion to God. They're not hearing what the law is saying and are not hearing what God is saying either. Verse 24, Romans 2. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So because the law keeper is failing to live up to the standard of their boast, even the Gentiles see their folly and in turn mock and blaspheme the name of God because the Gentiles associated God with the Jews, with Israel alone. And the Gentiles would rightly mock the Jews to say, it seems like you are not different from us. You are no better than us. We know we are sinners, but we thought you were the better people. Because you're doing the same things that we do. Idol worship and all kinds of foolishness, just like the rest of us. And how can their so-called God allow for such to happen? We would not want to have such a God. We already have a ton of gods to deal with. <laughs> so that is the mockery and the blasphemy that was coming from the Gentiles because of the sins of those who were claiming to keep the law. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Paul then goes on to define some things to the Jews, which would imply that there were Jewish elements in the Roman church. He says circumcision is indeed profitable, provided you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision profits Nothing. It has become uncircumcision. So what matters is not the external rite or the symbol, but the actual doing or keeping of the law. Verse 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, we will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision. And I need you to listen carefully. That is a hypothetical question that is leading us to Paul's large argument. Paul is working to remove the thinking in the heads of the Jews that just a mere circumcision of the flesh was enough to entitle them, to recommend them to God. He says, there's actually a possibility that an uncircumcised man or person could actually keep the righteous requirements of the law. So they are the righteous requirements of the law that have to be kept. 
And if that could happen by them, and when that happens, even though that person may have been a Gentile who was not circumcised according to the law, they would also be considered or counted as circumcised with respect to righteousness. So a non-Jew could actually do the requirements or essence of the law and meet them, but without the physical circumcision and be deemed as righteous. Paul is saying circumcision of the flesh is not the requirement for you to be considered as righteous before God. And neither being under the law that does not entitle you to salvation. Hear this correctly. Hear this correctly. Because if you do not pay attention, you're going to say, oh, James said, law-keeping is possible. No, law-keeping is impossible with sinners. God alone, through Christ, kept the law. Paul is working some definitions for us to prepare our minds to understand the gospel. So follow the arguments. This is what he's saying. Where the keeping of the law has happened, if there is a keeping of the law, by default, that person's uncircumcision is counted as the true circumcision by God. And it is actually a very offensive statement by Paul if understood properly by the Jews because the Jews are they who have invested much in the circumcision of the flesh. And how can that happen? How can that even happen that, that Gentiles could be considered, considered regarded as such who were not of the stock or descendants of Abraham as the Jews were without going through the rite of passage through the circumcision of the flesh? How could that even be said of the Gentiles? It does not make sense. Paul, you are destroying our Jewish identity. Paul says, no, that's lost and done. Because remember, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, and all those things lost and done. So it's similar theology here. So this is a very antinomian idea. This is a very anti-law idea. A revolutionary idea. A very offensive idea to say a Gentile could be considered circumcised and even more righteous without being brought under the law and without being physically circumcised. What an offense to the Jews. But Paul continues and says, yeah, this verse principle. And will not the physically uncircumcised if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision 
are a transgressor of the law. And Paul says, in the light of the preceding argument, will not the physically uncircumcised, that is the Gentile, who fulfills the law, judge you, the Jew, even with your written code and circumcision, as a transgressor of the law. See that written code. It is not just the so-called ceremonial law, but the whole covenant of the law with its commandments of thou shalt or thou shalt not. So Paul raises the prospect that even those who were not traditionally under the law are able in some way to actually fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and be deemed as righteous by God and be deemed as circumcised by God himself. But how does that happen if one is from the Romans one country? Do we take the flint stones as what happened with Joshua and the children of Israel when they were getting ready to go into the promised land, get Joshua to get busy with the circumcision? Do we have a Sunday to do just a circumcision for that? Because if you know, you and I have our address, we have our zip code, we have our postal code in Romans 1 country. That's where we belong. Naturally, that's where we were found. And I thought Paul had destroyed all the hopes of anyone prior to this from ever keeping the law. How does one who was born and raised in the Romans 1 country get to meet and satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and be called circumcised and be called righteous by God. That's what Paul is working. There's a God-given way. There is a God-given way. There's a way to it. And we have to understand that way. And Paul will later expound more the matter of circumcision and uncircumcision with respect to Abraham and the crediting of righteousness. And this conversation here lays down the foundation of that discussion to come in chapter 3. Okay? Chapter 3 and chapter 4. Verse 28, Romans 2. Paul continues and says, and that means we have one more verse to go. Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Okay? That is something new. That is something mind-blowing to the Jews. I'm like, you are a sellout. (laughs) They've never heard of this. This way of understanding is totally new to the circumcised Jew. 
because they knew that even from among the Gentiles who wanted to join the nation of Israel and worship the God of Israel, they had to be circumcised. And now Paul comes with this Jesus, with this gospel, and says, oh, by the way, one is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Like what? <laughs> and that is saying, physical circumcision means nothing in the bigger scheme of spiritual realities. The Jew has a lot of investment in this physical circumcision, which I said Paul counted as nothing, as lost and done, and says now the true Jew is not one by genealogy, nor are they marked by external things that they approve of, what they eat, what they wear, and how they wear it. Whether they have been physically circumcised or not. Whether they keep the Sabbath or not. Those are not the identifying markers of a true Jew. Those are only outward things, but they are not the substance of things. And God does not judge eternal spiritual things based on external things. God does not judge and exchange eternal things based on what you do. Essentially, that's what he's saying. It's not about what you do. Because the substance of all these things are found in the person of Christ. The real substance of circumcision is found in Christ. The real substance of the Sabbath is found in Christ. The real substance of law-keeping is found in Christ because he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the law, by nature, causes one to build confidence in these very outward things that do not matter, things that do not save. And that is why Paul would again say, if I should boast, I only boast in the cross of Christ Jesus, by which I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. I only boast in one thing. I can't boast in the flesh. I can't boast in my own obedience. If anything, it's Christ or I boast in my weaknesses. Yeah? So the physical circumcision means nothing to God. It gives no one any spiritual advantage. Verse 29, and that is our last verse. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter. Pay attention to the contrast that Paul is giving us. True circumcision is not in the letter. That means the law, whose praise is not from man, but from God. Because if you're doing the law, your praise is going to come from man, not from God. God will never praise you for doing the law. God will never praise you for doing the law because he has already given that praise to the Son 
who alone kept the law. God will never praise you for doing the law. He will never praise you. He will praise you for believing in him whom he has sent, the Lord Jesus. Yeah? So many things have been said here. Let's work them out. Paul says, a Jew is one who is one inwardly. And that is say it is a spiritual identity. A spiritual identity marker where the circumcision is that of the heart, which means in the spirit, which means done by God, not by the hands of men. It is not of the letter, and that means it is not of the law. That's the contrast. If we are telling the truth, we should hear the contrast between the letter and the spirit. We should hear the contrast between the law and the new covenant of grace. We should hear the ministry of the spirit contrasted to the ministry of death and condemnation. Paul is very consistent in all his writing in making the distinction between the law and grace, spirit and the flesh. We have to maintain that distinction if we are telling the truth. As soon as a preacher begins to double speak and say, oh, you are under the spirit, you are under grace, but Moses, we do the law just to honor God and stuff like that. You know, they are lying already. They are already lying. I'm not even kidding. God makes the distinction. Okay? So it is not in the letter, it is of the spirit. The letter cannot make you acceptable to God. The letter, the law cannot make you a Jew in the spiritual sense. I see some person on Facebook who claims sovereign grace, but he is dilly darling with all oh, we keep the Torah. Oh yeah, he is talking about Torah keeping and all this foolishness. And then you have the Hebrew, Hebrew roots movement and all that foolishness. It's all foolishness. It's deception. Yeah? The law cannot make you fulfill the law. But something does. The circumcision of the heart by the spirit will make any persons described above to be doers or keepers of the law. And that is some very interesting stuff right there for me. It's very interesting. But how exactly? Let's work this as we close. Because God does not circumcise the heart and by his spirit anyone for whom Christ did not die to redeem. God does not do that. God does not circumcise one spiritually for whom Christ did not already die for. By circumcision of the heart, sinners are made believers. And those that have been made believers have kept 
the requirements of the law. By and through Jesus Christ. You have to hear this, you have to hear this. Those who believe the truth of Christ have been circumcised of God. And they've been circumcised of God because they have already met the righteous requirements of the law by Christ Jesus. That's the only way. So faith evidences this reality. It evidences possession of this circumcision by the Spirit. And by this circumcision, by the Spirit, they are caused to see the true righteousness, which is by Christ Jesus, as the only righteousness. And this is where the Romans one citizen, even the barbarians and the Scythians, the moralists and the Jew can meet together as one when they have been circumcised by God, by his spirit, they become one in Christ. They meet the righteous requirement of the law in another person by representation. They were one in condemnation because there was none better than the other. The moralist was just as bad as the barbarians. The Jew was just as bad as the Scythians who were the most depraved of the barbarians. But now, these hopeless sinners, no matter their favorable or unfavorable stations in life, in Christ, in this gospel of God's grace and righteousness freely imputed, even the most depraved sinner have met the righteous requirement of the law. <laughs> this is brilliant stuff. This is Holy Spirit stuff. Men and women cannot come up with this. So see what Paul has done. He has systematically destroyed the foundation of righteousnesses of three different people groups who are all religious. He has come and dismantled their righteousness. The Romans one country citizens are religious, but they are not righteous. They worship beasts and four-footed animals and creeping things. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. The moralist comes, they look all pretty, they look all cleaned up and put together. They worship their moralism. Look at me, I am not like other people. But God says, no, you do the very things you are condemned to. Then the Jew comes and says, oh, of course, condemn them. These are unrighteous people. The Jew comes and claims they worship God through the law. But in essence, they use the law to establish their own righteousness and worship themselves. Paul is going to talk to that in Romans 10 and says, I cry for my people Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, for I bear witness 
before God, that they have zeal. They have zeal for God, but not in line with the truth. Why? Because being ignorant of God's righteousness, they set about to establish their own righteousness in the flesh. So they were using the law to establish their own righteousness. And yet the law was not given for us or anyone to establish righteousness by. Yeah? So the Jew, the lawkeeper, they're not as righteous as they think. Like the Pharisee, they only talk about themselves. God, I thank you. <laughs> God, I thank you. I am not like other men. Luke 10. We can never preach more than two messages without going, to there, without going there. So they're deceived as to the proper understanding of the law, deceived as to the proper use of the law. They boast in the law. They rest in the law. Which thing condemns them as unrighteous because they break it every day like all the progressive sanctification people who say, oh, they... Don't sin anymore. There's actually some dude on Facebook who claims that he doesn't sin anymore. He's deceived. There's no way. There's no way. He's deceived. I, I don't care how much scripture he quotes. When someone says that, they're deceived. I'm getting better and better. I'm not sinning as much as I used to do. How are you measuring yourself? Because if you sin one time, one day, for one second, and you do that every day, that's 365 times a year. Yeah? The law keeper claims to be light to those in the dark when they themselves are also in the dark. They claim to see when they are blind, as Jesus said. You claim that you see Therefore, your sin remains because if you were blind, I would have removed your sin. So the Jew, with all their high pretensions of law-keeping, is condemned just as the moralist. And these people have not died. Don't think the Jew and the moralist have died. No, they were sitting in the pews this very morning. They are in the pulpits. They have not died. They're keeping on with the traditions of their fathers. And that means all those who push the law of Moses, which is the letter, to be binding on the conscience of the redeemed of Christ, have no understanding. They may have verses that they use, but they don't have understanding. The real circumcision is that which is done inwardly done by the Spirit of God and it respects the person of Christ and the law cannot circumcise a sinner unto righteousness and to God's blessing as Moses did not circumcise Israel to go into the promised land it was Joshua who did the work of circumcision and Joshua representing Christ so all those who enter into God's promised land, into God's salvation, enter by the circumcision of Christ, which he does by his spirit. 
The law only brings the judgment of condemnation to them who think they're keeping it, but without giving them a way of escape. The law does not ever give a way of escape. Only Christ does. Christ alone is the refuge. Christ alone is our refuge. Nowhere in the Bible does God say the law is your refuge. Christ alone is our city of refuge. And you can understand why Paul could come and say in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace, of, the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If righteousness, if circumcision, if the spirit, if our inheritance, if our faith, if our anything came by the law, then Christ died in vain. Righteousness could never come from the law. So know your country of origin. Know your country of origin. Romans 1 country. The moralist country. Yeah? God found you loitering in one of these zip codes. <laughs> this is where you were. Hopeless and condemned. And we need to establish this truth. To believe this truth. If we are to make any meaningful progress in gospel understanding. If we are to believe in a way that pleases God. Men and women are born in a desperate state of spiritual depravity. Even the best of them. And being born again does not cause righteousness in those who are spiritually born. It does not cause righteousness in them. They're born again to see the hopelessness of Romans one country existence, of moralism, of law keeping, and then running to the news of the righteousness of God revealed. When you have understood that you were hopeless in Romans 1 country, even as a moralist, the message of God's grace and peace from our Lord Christ Jesus and God the Father becomes the best news that you have ever had. That's where Paul is going. That's the point. That's the whole point of all this laboring. If this is not understood, we cannot be profited by what follows. Yeah? We have to understand where we've come from. Romans 1 country. Hopeless. Christ revealed our life and righteousness. And to God in Christ be the glory now and forever. Amen. We are done. We are done. Praise the Lord. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, okay? And thank Him for the words that He's given us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You again for these many wonderful words that we have learned from the pen of Apostle Paul about the condition of men as sinners, as depraved, as hopeless, as citizens of Romans 1 country, 
being formerly Mona Lisa and even those who were seeking righteousness by our own doing. And yet, by God's grace and the working of the Holy Spirit, we've been given the true knowledge of salvation, the true light. Our eyes have been opened. We pray, Lord, that you continue to teach your people. Show them the beauty of this Christ, the beauty and wonder of this wonderful news. Lord, we know that we are sinners, but keep us from our sins. Protect us from the sins of others. Guide us in the truth of Christ. We honor you and glorify you. May you provide for your people always in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my beloved people. Bye-bye. Okay? <laughs>